0: Your dad wants a word?
1: Yeah, let's go. Okay. These people have grown up in a way that has inflicted damage on them. You could say, if it wasn't for my dad, I would have been this. I understand that, but it's an excuse. You have to own who you are. We are abused and hurt people hurt people. original succession podcast my name is brendan i am joined as always by my co-hosts kate hello and gabby hey everyone and joining us this week to talk about season three episode five retired janitors of idaho is a critic at large for vox the co-creator of arden it's emily Vanderwerf. hi emily
0: hello how's everyone doing
1: terrific great Uh, we We are delighted to have you on the show, Emily. You wrote a terrific piece about this episode, about retired janitors of Idaho. Uh, And as I was reading it, because you do this analysis of the episode that incorporates a sort of formal visual analysis of Renoir's Rules of the Game, and also a discussion of trauma response. And as I was reading that, I was kind of fist-pumping, hooting, and hollering, because damned if that is not the exact... Intersection of our interests here on the Roycast <laughs> is trauma and formal analysis.
0: <laughs> Jean, Jean, Jean Renoir and uh, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, just like the Venn diagram intersection of those two things, perfect.
1: Yeah, precisely, precisely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we uh, have a really, whew, a really packed, plotty episode to talk about tonight. Um, we've been doing these plot recaps right at the start of the episode, and I'm going to try to really boil this down because we could really get bogged down in some of the machinations that happen in this episode. So in Retired Janitors of Idaho, basically after building up the shareholder meeting for the last two years, succession takes a zag. Um, Both sides uh, of this conflict are desperate to talk down the mad old men they work for and negotiate a deal rather than roll the dice on a floor vote. After a promising talk between both camps, Sandy makes increasingly personal demands out of spite, and Logan angrily calls off the deal. Soon, though, the Waystar team realizes that Logan is delusional because he hasn't taken his UTI meds and work behind his back to salvage the deal. Shiv accomplishes this by guaranteeing an extra Waystar board seat, each for her daughter Sandy and for herself. Meanwhile, the president calls for Logan, which Roman accepts, learning that he is declining to run for re-election thanks to the ATN pressure campaign. So those are sort of the broad strokes, the big sort of uh, plot events that happen in this episode. Um, but what we're dealing with here, uh, you know, roughly speaking, is a farce, uh, which is not a, a qualitative judgment of this episode, but it's a, it's a genre of, of theatrical comedy, right? We've got a single setting, uh, we've got a mounting pace, we've got lots of characters, this very absurd situation, frequent entrances and exits, and You know, Succession often builds uh, central scenes at a single location, but it's rare not only that you have a single location like this hotel conference center where we arrive a minute into the episode and we don't leave, uh, but we have a single plot conflict that all the characters are involved in, especially one that feels this explicitly comedic, where the comedy comes from the Waystar team realizing the person whose word they're hanging on, Logan, uh, doesn't really know where he is. (laughs) So, Emily, I want to talk to you first about how the show handles this use of tone there's this really interesting formal stuff going on here we've got a structure that takes the theatrical style uh that other episodes of succession frequently draw on and redirects it towards this farcical plot um and how this how does the show use the camera to kind of keep track of these characters not just physically but in terms of who they are as people even as they're reacting to this very absurd situation
0: Yeah. um, I am fascinated by how this episode is functionally a bottle episode. It's not technically a bottle episode. A bottle episode would be confined to one set and it would be done to save money. And I don't think that this episode was inexpensive compared to an episode of succession where they like go to Malta or something. It's probably inexpensive, but um, it is certainly one where they have amped up the idea of getting everybody in the same space as much as possible and they also try as much as possible to get as many actors into the same frame and I think that that is a thing the show often does it is not like if you look at a shot within succession unless it's an extreme close up there is inevitably like more actors in the frame than you would expect in most other TV shows a lot of TV is pretty spare is pretty sparse especially prestige drama Um, you know Uh, You might have, for instance, a large group of extras, but you often don't have a bunch of people from the cast itself peppering the background of the shots. So um, I think that's I think that's a fascinating thing that Succession does. And I think it is just sort of in a way the show being able to track how the characters relate to each other, how the things uh, that they do affect each other and how the various relationships they have, especially with their father, trickle through them as people, as, you know, siblings, as family members. And I think that that is one of the things Succession is best at. And yes, this sort of staging is great for comedy. It's very fun to see everyone react to the invisible cat thing, but it also is, I think it's sneakily even better at drama because it allows everyone to react to these big moments of high emotion that are fundamentally more... Dramatic within the world of the show, um, and I wrote a whole piece about it, <laughs> so people can go click on my name and say, "Oh, here you go, Emily wrote wrote about this thing." Because I'm I, I'm talking too much.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, uh, we definitely will link to this piece that you wrote for Vox in the show notes because we think everybody should go uh, and read this piece if they haven't uh, already. Uh, but yeah, I I, I do want to dig into just how we keep track of the characters. Uh, because the show has established so well who these characters are in a very dramatic and oftentimes tragic storyline. We already talked about how the show is in many ways about abuse and this and that surfaces as Emily explores uh, in that piece. Uh, but here they're being used to as players in this very explicitly, comedic, almost slapstick storyline. I mean, there are these huge laugh moments in the episode that are paced for maximum impact. I was watching this episode by myself, but I was thinking, gosh, I wish I could see this like in a theater with an audience, cause I, I bet <laughs> this would play so great. You know, there's that central scene where the Waystar team first realizes that Logan's delirious. You have Ken suddenly arriving, Colin rushing out with the imaginary cat, the pace and the volume are ramping up. Um, at the end, you have the image of Ken crashing the stage and making that very awkward statement. And then there's cuts back to the Waystar team, reacting and booing him um we also have this literal running gag of jerry and carl rushing back and forth uh to the stage to keep frank updated uh and and gabby we were talking about how this episode makes a lot of use of the kind of c-suite players you know these executive frank and jerry and carl uh and the more consistent use of them than we usually see and especially seeing them interact with each other away from the family uh do, do you think we learn anything new about their relationships in this episode
2: i think we do yeah i mean at first there's this you know, There's this hilarious song and dance that these executives are forced to perform uh, amid all this commotion behind the scenes. So while all this is going on, we get Frank and Jerry putting on happy faces to give these very vacuous uh, corporate jargon-laden speeches to the crowd. Um, we also see these focus group-tested videos in the background about Waystar taking responsibility and doing better in the future. So all of that juxtaposed with the disorder and disunity behind the scenes um, really lines up nicely with the season of Succession where there's been such a heavy focus on communications and optics and uh, the jabs that Carl, Jerry and Frank kind of throw at each other on stage while they're acting for the crowd uh, were just so funny. And just all the silliness of it, the, the note passing to Frank really lent itself to the comedic shape of the episode. But I do also think this episode revealed some important information about the relationships between Carl, Frank, and Jerry, who are hugely important people in Logan's life. Don't forget that these are folks who come to Thanksgiving dinners and are godparents to the Roy kids. Um, Logan, of course, always sort of blurring the lines between the personal and the professional. So. It's very smart to show us more about how they interact with each other and the family. So amongst themselves, they kind of have this hilarious casual contempt for one another and they're hurling insults all the time. But we also know that this crew has been in the trenches together for decades and they have seen a lot. Um, Think back to episode one of this season, Frank and Carl having that, is this the worst conversation about waste our misdeeds, talking about... Argentina and tabloid suicides and whatnot. Um, There are also many, many brief conversations or tidbits or allusions throughout the course of the show that indicate how long these folks have been around and how enmeshed they are with the Roy family. So while they bicker, um, you know, these characters are uniquely bonded by the work they do, the secrets they share, and their loyalty to Logan. Um, Now, their relationship with the kids is also very interesting. Um, Barring Jerry and Roman, who have their own thing going on, this season, uh, the C-suite and the kids are kind of brushing up against each other quite a bit. And when it comes to, you know, who Logan ultimately favors, neither side really has the advantage. Um, The C-suite kind of has to grudgingly work with the kids because they're these appendages of Logan. They also know Logan doesn't really respect his kids all that much. And, you know, Logan's not going to fire Carl because he was mean to Shiv. Logan chose these guys and his kids are just there by birthright.
1: Yeah, Emily, I want to give you a chance to, to kind of play off that. I mean, it's, it is it is really interesting the way that uh, these characters have to kind of uh, work together to solve this problem when all of them are sort of unsure how to respond and how to take cues from Logan in this situation where he's really not himself. You know, he, he doesn't know where he is. How did you see the characters kind of uh, like as like the family versus these executives, these c-suite characters, you know, kind of responding differently to the situation. Does this tie into a little bit of what you were talking about in your piece?
0: Uh, sort of, I don't know that the the reactions are that different. It's all designed to prop up a a, a dinosaur, you know it's all designed to weekend at Bernie's, this man who's not technically <laughs> dead, but is yeah. you know, might as well be like
2: it would be great to get the body up there.
0: The start of this show is Logan nearly dying. And then he doesn't die. And the run of this show is people being like, well, I don't know, Logan probably shouldn't be in charge anymore, but he is. Are you going to tell him not to be? And then everyone being like, oh, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work. And it's just fascinating to me how every season of this show is just the characters trying to predict what he wants and then trying to give it to him, and every time somebody provides a trap door, an escape route, whatever, whether that's Kendall or Stewie or whomever, they all are like, "Yeah, but Logan, yeah, yeah exactly." Yeah. The the um, mass in time of war, the second episode of the third season, which I think frustrated some people, um, where Kendall like tries to get all his siblings on his side, and eventually ends up, you know, alienating them worse than he ever has before, is like just the ultimate example of this logan terrifies these people he he terrifies his family obviously but he also we haven't delved as much into the ways that he's a toxic boss within the workplace but he very clearly is a toxic boss within the workplace so he terrorizes you know frank and jerry and and carl and so on and so forth so um i think i think it is worth just sort of nodding to the fact that uh I don't know that the the, the responses are all that different outside of you know the bare level plot thing of the family has this specific goal the c-suite people have this specific goal um but yeah I don't think that those goals are all that different in the end they're all designed to keep Logan in power for reasons nobody quite understands
3: right and and we said that Logan kind of blends professional and personal and while we don't really go into the personal of, of these C-suite guys and gals, you know, you get the idea that they also blend the personal and the professional because they're always at work, Um yeah
1: well there's that wonderful moment where I think I think it's Shiv who like waves to Hugo and is like go take care of Logan and Hugo's like me? I don't want that's, that's not my job uh, but he just kind of like he just kind of like awkwardly shuffled like waddles over there and tries to make sense of the the imaginary dead cat thing uh, this wonderful uh, analogy which I, I realized talking about this episode that the show has actually brought up before remember in uh, uh, the season 2 finale Tom tries to uh, play off his disastrous hearing performance in D- DC as Oh, I was dead catting, you know, this idea that he's making a spectacle of himself by acting like a dead cat up there on the table or something. Uh, and now we have Colin carrying out an imaginary dead cat. And of course, when we think of a dead cat, you know, the metaphor that comes to mind is Schrodinger's cat, right? This uh, animal that's both dead or alive uh, at once in this uh, thought experiment, and Logan is kind of that cat. He's both dead and alive at once, uh, where people are, are know that imminently they're going to have to make a future without him, but they, they can't quite bring themselves uh, to move on from him yet. So um. You know, one of the other really interesting things in this episode is the way that it silos. You know, we talked about how Ken serves as a kind of escape hatch, potentially, for these characters in Mass and Time of War, an escape hatch that's not taken. And here he's kind of siloed off. Uh, from the central drama which is a little bit jarring to see but it's not the first time that the show has done this right the director actually uh Kevin Bray uh, of this episode also directed uh, Dundee from season two which similarly has Ken kind of sidelined uh from the central drama that episode mostly concerned if we remember uh Shiv trying to undermine uh Rhea uh, meanwhile uh uh, ken is having kind of a disastrous love affair with an actress and uh doing a rap on stage um but uh you know i was uh but 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 for the most part he's kind of absent and there and there and i think that absence is felt um in the way that the the show uses him as kind of comic relief uh in the way that this drama feels a little bit removed from some of the uh emotional stakes um and you know i was reading some of the online reactions just to get a sense of how this episode was received and amid all the usual ecstatic praise that this show inspires i did find some kind of dissent and dissatisfaction which i think is understandable because there's a real and intentional sense in which this episode is an anti-climax to this big uh much anticipated shareholder meeting storyline there's no fiery showdown and any blowback from you know like shiv joining the board or potus stepping down is is deferred
2: right there's no dramatic vote uh you know or or whipping of of potential uh, voters it's Yeah, it's all just, you know, typical bumbling Roy's and their. Yeah,
1: whatever we were expecting. People have
0: watched this show before, right? right?
1: (laughs) I know.
0: You start to wonder. I'm not so sure, Emily. uh, One of the big things that I find in the reactions to this show and to the pieces I write is people being like, well, you know, Logan's the mastermind. And I'm like, have you watched the show? And I, I agree that compared to his kids, Logan pretty clearly, I don't think he's smarter than his kids, but I think he's more ruthless than his kids. And I think we live in a culture that interprets ruthlessness as intelligence Mm. in a weird way. So I get it. But also Mm -hmm. like... This is not a show that would ever have you, like, look at the Roys getting to keep their company and, like, make it a dramatic, exciting turnaround at the end. This is not a show that would do, like, oh, for instance, the political convention episode of The West Wing, which I think is is a very fun episode. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, I think, what people would be asking for. Because that would suggest the company is worth keeping. This is a show about how none of this should exist. (laughs) Like this is a show that is fundamentally about how all of this is empty and broken and should be taken away from them and should be ground into dust and thrown away. And yet it continues to perpetuate itself. And every victory is hollow and Pyrrhic like that. That's, you know, there is a big blow up in this episode, but it's a father finally blowing up at his daughter who, you know, he, he treasured forever. Like that's, what this show is about and um, the more the bigger succession gets this is inevitable when a tv show starts to get to the level the succession is at there's just all kinds of people who watch it and have a sense of surface pleasures that sort of gets distorted, uh-huh. especially if you were able to binge earlier seasons and then have to watch one episode a week in later seasons. Mm. You misremember those earlier seasons as being very exciting. This tends to happen to right. any TV show, honestly. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I feel like that's happening with Succession, where people are now imagining it to be a show that it's not. And like, that's fine, That, that that's a sign that Succession is very successful. But it is a little disheartening as someone who watches this show primarily as kind of a very dark, somber drama that happens to have a lot of great jokes in it.
2: Emily, um, what you were just saying about like people forgetting the earlier seasons, I, I do think that happens and that's why I'm the the champion of the rewatch and I try and get everyone to rewatch the show because I-, I do think people forget what show they're watching and there might be like a recency bias thing going on with the season two finale because it was so high drama and ended on this... Um, you know, very intriguing note that I think um, coming into this season, yeah uh, you never, you know really know what the shape of an episode is is going to look like, that's part of the fun Um, but, you know, I see a lot of people complaining about like well, they're just doing the same thing over and over again. And it's that's like, the
3: point. Whoa. They're
0: trapped. <laughs> what you, what, you... <laughs> I mean, what do you mean? I mean,
3: the conflict, you know, is that they're trapped and they keep getting these escape patches, as Emily said, and they refuse to take them. And, you know, that's that's the drama. That's why we tune in. Um, so well, it is but... going to keep
1: well, but there is a sense in which the the situations these characters find themselves in, I mean, like, personally, you know, like, spiritually, morally, uh, is repetitive. And, you know, there is a, a circular nature to the conflict that we've uh, discussed on this show before. Uh, but I do think that this episode, you know, like, stylistically, tonally, is a little bit different than something they've done before. It does feel, you know, more broadly comic uh, more farcical than anything they've done before. You know, Kate, uh, in in one of our conversations earlier today, was mentioning um, that this is something that you know other shows couldn't do. Like, it takes a lot of just like skill that these writers have, these writers, directors, performers, uh, to pull off an episode with this kind of sustained comic tension. Um, and we were and I was we were thinking about like other episodes. Uh, that maybe have sort of jarred viewers in the past we were thinking about like the dream episodes on the Sopranos right which I think were and remain somewhat controversial for people who watched that show maybe because they had a you know they they also had a strange idea of what they wanted out of the Sopranos they wanted more mob action or something Um, but then I was also thinking of other episodes that intentionally upset the idea of a big game changer Uh, like uh, another show that drew on sitcom tropes Mad Men which has that season three episode guy walks into an advertising agency where it seems like you know Guy McKendrick from the UK is going to come in and completely make over Sterling Cooper in his own image, and then he gets his foot cut off, and everything goes back to normal at the end of the episode. Um, so, I, so I mean, the this I, I do feel like the sitcom rhythms here are something that Succession is like really good at, at at tapping into. You know, we I think we talked last week about how some of the subplots felt more uh, kind of sitcommy, and there and there is a real power to that because you know in, in sitcoms and Emily, maybe you can speak to this uh, because you've been on the TV. Re- Recap you yourself for so long, uh, but on sitcoms, there is a sense that these characters are kind of in stable patterns, right? That things don't change for them that much, and it's more about expressing that uh, in interesting and funny ways week to week. Does it? What What do you think of that? Did this episode feel any sitcomy to you at all?
0: I've seen people comparing Succession to a sitcom a lot this season, and I think it's because it's a very funny show. And yes, it is fundamentally trapped in the same patterns. And I think. Succession draws your attention to that in a way that other prestige dramas do not, but all of them are trapped in a status quo as well, you know, things never really changed on The Sopranos, things never really changed on Mad Men, like the external trappings would change, but Mm -hmm. the characters would be the same, the point of those shows was that you can't escape yourself. Succession. One of the things I love about what it does is it takes all of the tropes of the prestige drama and subverts them. How many shows would have made forcing the president of the United States to stop <laughs> his re-election campaign, like the center of a whole season? And here it happens as a runner in the background
3: as a barely, and a phone
0: yeah. call we don't hear. <laughs> that is like a season of House of Cards. One of the worst shows you know, just like a, an, a horrible one of my one of my very good friends, I had a recurring role on House of Cards, and it would paid her a lot of money, and I'm very happy for her. But a terrible show, a terrible good show. For her. Um, not
3: not to assign additional homework, but it also if you've watched other Jesse Armstrong projects such as Veep or The Thick of It, it's like I came away from this episode immediately thinking, oh my gosh, this was a th- the thick of it. Um, oh
1: yeah. Episode. Well, we have. Yeah, yeah, I think we have a lot to say about the thick of it here, which we're going. Oh, go okay. To I'm sorry. Later. Yeah, 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 yeah. And
0: I'll say, like, I have the benefit of knowing what episode six and seven are because I've seen them, and like, there's mm. there's stuff coming mm-hmm. that is built up in this episode that I think is very satisfying and I think people will really like. Um, but I've also seen those episodes, and there's a lot this season that's riding on what happens in the final two, and I'm interested to see how they pull it off because Succession is a show about how. Even when things change, nothing changes, you know? Say that Kendall had managed to pull it off and push his dad out. We've seen this season how he would have just turned into his dad. He's very bullying, he's very loud, he's very coarse. And like, yeah, he didn't manage the trick, at least so far as we've seen so far. But, you know, it would have been meet the new boss, same as the old boss. One of the points of succession is that things don't really change and that we are trapped in a car that is going downhill and there are no bricks and there's a cliff coming and we're all going to go to hell and we're being dragged there by old rich people. So, happy birthday to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually two weeks from my birthday. Like, it's not even my birthday yet. I don't know why I'm wishing myself happy birthday. Happy birthday. birthday Thank you.
1: (laughs) Happy early birthday! Happy early
3: birthday!
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, and I think that that very conceit uh, frustrates viewers a lot. They want to see uh, propulsive, right? And action.
0: I, I think that my point is that, and granted, this is as someone who has both recapped and watched a lot of TV. Propulsive action is usually just covering up a return to the status quo. Um, mm-hmm. Breaking Bad is very famously a show where things changed. You know, Walter White's uh, status within the world grew with every season. But he really like didn't change as a person. We saw him in that first season. You know, and a lot, everything that we needed to know about him was already there. His circumstances changed it. He did not change. And I think that that is a thing that Succession underlines. Succession highlights that for effect. And I think it works very well. But I think if you are sitting here saying, you know, nothing ever changes, then you're kind of fundamentally asking Succession to not be the show that it is. And I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's fine. But I think the show's critique of modern capitalism, modern news media, modern whatever, is so pointedly in how nothing ever changes. And like, if you made it a show where things changed, it would no longer be succession. Yeah.
2: Reflective of reality, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, we wanted to talk a little bit about the actual machinations of the shareholder deal that happens here. There's a lot of back and forth. You know, Gabby is fond of, Uh, referring to this stuff uh, with a phrase that I think Sarah Snook first used on an interview. She calls the sort of business talk yoga babble, you know, this kind of uh, corporate business jargon that gets thrown around uh, quite a bit in this episode and on succession sometimes. Uh, But, uh, you know, the the title of the episode, Retired Janitors of Idaho, I think refers to these, you know, pension funds and smaller shareholders uh, that might be the difference makers in a floor vote if it comes to that. Uh, because although uh, Stewie has been quite intransigent in previous negotiations with Logan and Ken, uh, it seems all of a sudden, now that we're at the precipice, you know, they're blinking a bit, you know, Kendall uh, says that Stewie's finances are, are weakening, you know, if uh, the deal doesn't go their way, if they lose a very close uh, floor vote, uh, then Stewie can't just move on to th- the next company because he'll have a 50 million dollar hole in his pocket his reputation will be shaken you know and at the end of the day as we've talked about many times in the past stewie is kind of an empty vessel you know there's not a lot of there there um and he's counting on having you know scary sandy in his corner uh to back down logan uh but sandy's also weakening he's had some uh unidentified health troubles they mentioned syphilis before but that's also implied uh in this episode to have been a rumor <laughs> that uh that at had started uh and logan won't back down So both he and Ken are in this position he and uh, Stewie and Ken where they feel they have to form this conduit but they end up being kind of inessential uh to the deal making um I mean and I mean Gabby we were talking about you know the idea that Ken kind of speaks Stewie do you think he actually makes a difference Ken uh in this uh deal at all Do Ken and Stewie actually end up making any kind of difference here or do they just kind of you know provide the small little push that gets this ball rolling
2: yeah I think it's more like you know moving the till a bit like you know, I'm, I'm glad to see Aaron Mooyah again. There's this understated smugness to the way that Mooyah has played Stewie since the beginning. Um, this appearance of kind of being aloof and unflappable. If you pay attention to his face, his eyebrows are always sort of raised, uh, like in amusement, and he speaks with this sort of soft, quiet voice. But that's also like dripping in condescension. But Uh, In this interaction early on with Ken and Stewie, we see that kind of start to falter a little bit. And I think Ken is the one who can kind of penetrate Stewie because the two know each other so well. They've gone to school together. And if you remember from season one, yeah, Ken says that he speaks Stewie. So Ken is sort of reading Stewie here. He mentions the wobbly financing. And when Stewie says, well, we can just walk away and on to the next company, Ken calls his bluff. Um, and after that, if you pay attention closely, you can see uh, a change in Moaiad's expression and his tone of voice. His eyebrows kind of lower, his cadence becomes a little more sheepish. Um, he seems to be sort of desperate for this deal to pan out and to be done with the whole thing. Um, he calls Sandy the angriest vegetable. It's, you know, a far cry from Prague in season one where the two appeared together very confident or in Greece uh, when Logan and, and Ken come um, to to see Stewie in the finale of season two to present a deal, and um, you know Stewie rejects it, and while well, he's you know sniffing some lavender and mocking Ken, so so this was different. And I do think Ken um, gets at something here with Stewie, and, and we see that um, you know it's very much in the interest of Stewie, Sandy, and Sandy to to get this deal I think done. That
3: there is a difference that Kendall makes, and I don't mean to. I mean it's. It's that he warns Shiv, he he gives Shiv, he calls her, you know, Puppet Master out. But, you know, he calls her and (laughs) lets her know in on the situation so she knows how to play it. So the difference he's making is um, that he's sharing this information with with his sister, who ultimately ends up, you know, playing playing that. So I do think he makes a small difference.
1: Very small, maybe, right? She says, I I no longer wish to receive these calls. I'm not sure that she would have played that meeting any differently, right? (laughs) And it seems like, and honestly, it really more seems like Jerry is uh, the crucial one to, to that negotiation, to getting that deal done. Um, she has the more savvy there. Uh, but it's kind of interesting the way that this, uh, you know, all these all these deals, all these things that they're arguing over, they end up being things that are very spiteful, very personal, right? Uh, Sandy wants this veto over a Roy Kidd ever becoming CEO, which they push back on. Then he wants them to give up the private jets, which is like, there's not a lot of things that they could negotiate on that would count as personal inconveniences to Logan Roy but giving up the pj's as they call them uh is is one of those and uh, Roman has that line about first they come for the p they came for the pj's and i said nothing you know next they're going to come for the outsized <laughs> compensation payments uh, I just I love uh, PJs because uh, you know the first time I ever heard this phrase used was on Vanderpump Rules, so I just thought that was really funny that it that it surfaces here. I guess it's probably a common rich person term, but those are the only two places I've ever heard it. <laughs>
3: it's it's really it is
2: yeah. It's it's also it's the first really place I heard in it. It's really the rap
3: world. <laughs> they love talking about PJs. The first time I heard it was on the Joe Bottom podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: Emily, Inside you ever I uh, recap Vanderpump
0: Rules? I have never recap Vanderpump Rules. I do, however, own a PJ.
1: <laughs>
0: listen, listen. There was big money in TV recaps in like the year 2011. I was, I was making yeah, bank. exactly, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. All that box money. Um, no, that was First, that we're was
0: coming for your PJ. That was
1: Onion Ink <laughs> money. Onion Inc. We, okay. yeah, we just were rolling. In it. <laughs> Recapping uh, slings and arrows, You thought that the good days would never end. Oh yeah, right? listen, I,
0: I I think I think sixteen people read those. That was like the rare occasion. My slings and arrows recaps, which everyone should go read because it's a very good show, very good recaps. Uh, there, that was the rare occasion where I was on staff, so they didn't have to pay me to write stuff. So like, uh, I mean, they they paid me a salary and I wrote stuff for them. So technically they did, but we didn't have to pay me freelance money. It was the rare occasion where my boss came to me and was like, we could probably stop doing these because no one's reading them. (laughs) (laughs) But I finished. But every
1: single one of those people who did uh, started their own TV blog. Um. Yeah, Vander, Vanderpump Rules. Yeah, I will say, as, as much respect as I have for the writers of Succession, they would never be able to write dialogue as funny as the stuff that gets said on, on that show.
2: Oh, yeah. One of our greatest of, of this One of the century. Best. So,
1: sure. yeah, the uh, it's, it's interesting because, yeah, I, when I was reading some, and I don't want to keep getting bogged down into what the online reaction of this episode was, but I, I did notice some people saying, like, wait, I was kind of hazy on, like, what exactly the deal was that they struck, etc. And I was just kind of struck by the way that the show, like, mm-hmm. it cares really deeply about researching and getting rights as we said the yoga babble these details of the business and legal plotting Uh, but they don't necessarily care about putting it on screen that much right this isn't like the Adam McKay version of the show where you would stop and have somebody explain to you you know exactly (laughs) how these sort of deals work where you would cut to I don't know you know Ariana Grande or something listen
0: listen listen if Taylor Swift was in this episode or she just came out and was like here's how the deal works to everybody i would give this 17 <laughs> stars out of five and then she performed a song from red taylor's version available on streaming platforms right now yeah perfect
2: yeah mm-hmm. i mean Zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, the the
3: discourse would be like out of this world,
2: months
3: (laughs) trending. I'm not
1: saying I wouldn't watch that, but it's not that version of the show. But that, but that leads me to this, uh, to one critique I did have of this episode that I want to get into a bit because this ended up being one of the things that I sort of chewed on the most thinking about this episode, uh, which was the plot point of the president. Stepping down of Potus declining to run for a second term, which is what Roman learns from that phone call he takes when the president's calling for Logan, and they end up giving the call to Rom. Uh, they give end up giving the phone to Roman because he's bootleg Logan, as uh, as Jerry says. Um, and and this this kind of stuck in my craw because this uh, not only because this this happened on uh, on Veep too, right? With Veep, which was a show run by Armando Iannucci, who had worked with Armstrong on the thick of it. Um where they also had a plot line where the president uh, declined to run for a second term. And they sort of needed that to happen in in plot terms. But but this but that specific thing of an American president, you know, stepping down voluntarily, not running for re-election, while this is not unheard of in American history. It is unheard of in the last 50 years, right? Like since LBJ, no president has declined to run for re-election. I mean, Nixon resigned, but in a lot of ways Watergate is kind of the exception that proves the rule, right? You know, certain things seem like they've kind of settled since then. You know, like there was that similar plot twist in Veep that I thought strained the reality of that show. Um, And this is the kind of thing that made more sense I thought, on the thick of it, you know, they have an episode, The Rise of the Nutters, I was rewatching that pivots on the Prime Minister's unexpected resignation. And the UK system, which is a parliamentary first-past-the-post system, where you have multiple parties, it accommodates that kind of shuffling of leadership and sudden reversals, which was a huge part of that show's plotting. You know, the Conservatives have been in power 10 years in the UK, and they've had three Prime Ministers. Um, And again, like, it isn't that Succession has to get... All the prosaic details of our political system, right? And I think it's partly to his credit that the show isn't, you know, concerned with what that maybe Adam McKay version of Succession might do, what a Vice or a Big Short might do, and explain to the audience how the mechanisms of government and politicking work. Uh, but what it what it needs to get right is, you know, the macro stuff, and you know, the thick of it had that really fun, frenetic farcical pacing because it fit the UK political system where people could be constantly shuffled in and out of their posts but what are the real characteristics of the sort of American political reality that I think this show is trying to capture in some way through the drama is this sense of entrenchment and gridlock and how stubbornly you know people like people like Logan and Sandy hang on to leadership you know especially at the executive level and in an episode that's otherwise on point, about that and about how all these people are being ruled by demented old men who will just never go away. Uh, That, that just rang kind of false to me. I don't know what you guys uh, think about that.
0: I agree with you on Veep. I think it worked here. I think it works here because the show is fundamentally saying Who's in power doesn't matter because uh, it's always going to be some old man who uh, is pulling the strings. And like Logan Roy is pulling the strings. And therefore, for the world of succession, it makes complete and perfect sense. It doesn't make perfect sense in our reality. Probably not. But if Rupert Murdoch had just like mercilessly turned on George W. Bush, which was never going to happen. You know, I I think that... um, I do think that it would have had an effect on George W. Bush's popularity, especially at a time when he was only narrowly when he only mm-hmm. narrowly won re-election anyway. Yeah, yeah. And like you know, that probably wasn't right. going to happen with Trump. But Trump is this weird, sui generis figure within um, American politics, and I, I this is a this is a problem because I know what's coming. But I will say that uh, it is <laughs> it works for me because it fundamentally underlines the ways that the roys are chaos agents within the world right. who take only what mm. they want and episode 6 will underline that in a way that i think will make you appreciate this plot point more is it realistic no i don't think it has to be
3: the the reason i didn't mind it and it's i mm-hmm. kind of i haven't seen the further episodes as you guys know but is that it's it's it's, it's a real example of them um, reaping what they sow uh the Roys you know what they what they put out there and the consequences you know trying to push this memory gate you know and these um issues about the president comes back to bite them in a way that I think is kind of fun um and and I appreciated that part of it uh yeah but it is not realistic and but I'm willing to overlook it for the sake of the show I think I think it kind of worked
1: i mean it is true that it's it's fun how it is kind of like a tossed off plot point right it, it is almost kind of like an afterthought and used more as a comic set piece than anything uh in this episode yeah i do like the idea of that being like the the classic what is it a uh, me sowing, me reaping tweet uh right that's, that's right. right with logan here <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean what yeah i mean Emily, you're you're quite right what it what what is important for this again is not that the show be very accurate about everything that happens the political system but it has what it has to get right is the macro stuff you know and i was thinking about veep and what i really appreciate about veep in hindsight what it got right at that macro level even if the some of the electioneering stuff felt a bit fantastical was that just absolutely desperate please like me flop sweat of the centrist politician right and of democrats in particular you know that was one of the things that the show continually mined for comedy you know the inability to make decisions um you know we've talked about what the thick of it Mm communicate about the absurdity of the uk system and so i was thinking about this in terms of just like what is succession's political balance what is the macro thing that it that it gets or what is what is it illustrating and what is the sensibility that underlies the drama and i think it's largely in this show about this reactionary mindset and the sense of grievance and persecution that underlies Logan's action. You know, I was saying uh, earlier this week that one of the threads of the series is Shiv getting red-pilled, which I'm only being slightly facetious about. Uh, You know, we've continually talked about on this show this motif of besiegement, right, of external forces invading the Roy's stronghold. is something that underlies their overall psychology of not, ...wanting to answer to anybody of this resentment at being questioned. You know, we very pointedly saw this in the DC episode where Ken used the very familiar Brett Kavanaugh-style tactic... ...of flipping the hearing around and painting himself and his father as the targets of this campaign of persecution. And this is what Shiv discovers the power of, especially in these recent episodes. She's continually marginalized and reduced to her status as a woman, is this power of, as she said in the last episode, of not being embarrassed, not getting embarrassed, of weaponizing that sense of grievance that fuels right wing backlash. This is the mm-hmm. thing I think that the show kind of backs into. It's this source of power. You know that can be a defense mechanism for the very real wounds and the deep insecurities that she has and that all these characters have you know we've talked so much on the show about the evolving metaphor of the gilded cage the dog cage which becomes in season two this fortress with walls that are going up around ken um, that then with the cruises scandal begins to feel as if under siege and that device is so at the heart of how we understand these characters Um, you know Gabby and I were talking about this earlier right and wanting to dig a little bit deeper into you know what's going on with Shiv this season because I think the show has been quite subtle about this but how does you know The way that Shiv is continually aligning herself, you know, explicitly in terms like in business terms and also just like politically with her father. How does that relate um, to some of these very deep seated issues that we've seen the show illustrate from the jump?
2: Shiv has been grappling with her position in the world and in her family, you know, from the beginning. Um, She kind of struggles with this perception of herself as being constantly forced onto the periphery of her family. And in a surface level way, it's true. She's the only woman. She's nicer than her brothers. Um, But I think what she's unable to see is that this perception is largely a self-fulfilling prophecy in response to her dysfunctional childhood. Um, We've spoken extensively about how the kids, you know, did not receive the psychological protection and security they needed from their parents. And for Shiv, her response to her trauma was to become pathologically avoidant. Um, To position herself as not needing anything from anyone, because if she doesn't need anything, she can't get hurt. Um, So staying away from the family business um, early on wasn't so much her exercising conviction or independence, but it was a way to not get hurt, particularly by the person whose opinion she cares about the most, arguably, arguably the only opinion she cares about her dad's um similarly marrying someone like tom was also a way to ensure that she would not get hurt um logan you know plainly calls her out on these things uh in austerlitz if you recall and it it very much rattles her because it rings so true um shiv likes to posture like she's unflappable but logan knows that underneath that there is a a vast ocean of, of fear and insecurity Um, because, you know, he's partially responsible for planting it. Um, And in the beginning of season two, Shiv is lured into the business by Logan's manipulation. He gives her all sorts of praise and reassurances that she's dying to hear. And it's really quite sad how she's not wise to it at all. Um, She really is so childlike when it comes to her dad, because um, the desire for it to be real is it's primordial. Uh, Then Logan starts to play these games with her as she strives to find her footing and she ends up hurt and not very much closer to what she wants. And this season, and particularly the past couple episodes, I think Shiv is starting to wise up to the game a little bit. Um, I think the conversation with Ken at the journalist dinner was sort of a tipping point. In her realizing that the only way to find any semblance of security that she craves is by positioning herself fully on the inside. Of the company, not trying to reform from the inside, which she played with a little, but by giving up any sense of propriety and throwing her lot in with the bad guys. Um, you know, by adopting the same reactionary position and grievances of her dad, by not being afraid of being embarrassed. You know, we see this in her confrontation with Ravenhead, and also in this episode. And so, while it's sort of like a tenuous security for Shiv, it's a better deal than being carved out yet again, which we know is her biggest fear. Um, And this is ultimately the trauma repeating itself because she will never get what she needs and she will continue to lose herself along the way. Logan will continue to berate and disrespect her. But instead of running away, she's now saying to herself, just watch how bad I can be. Um, You know, this is going to become a feedback loop for her increasingly bold behavior. And, you know, it's a little on the nose, but it really reminds me of a kid engaging in destructive behavior because it's the only way to get the attention of their parents um you know and if history shows us anything it's that this is not going to end well for shit
1: yeah emily i feel like this is a straight line drive down the middle to your territory here and especially the territory <laughs> you covered in your piece right talking about uh how these kids have these different trauma responses right to to logan's behavior in this episode so so what do you, what do you think of that and uh how do you see shiv tackling this situation
2: Sh- shiv as the as, as yeah the, exactly the fawn. <laughs> yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: It's tricky for me to talk about this because uh, episode six is a huge shiv episode that puts in context absolutely (laughs) everything that she's going through right now. Um, Episode seven is a huge Kendall episode, by the way. Um, So that's your your preview of what's to come. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think, yes, I think definitely like these characters are all driven by an essential foundational abusive childhood in a toxic home that has pulled them continually back to their father and sent them scattering away in different permutations and sort of my piece on Vox which i thought of as just sort of a kind of a like useful framework to watch the show i don't want anyone to like look at this and think of it as like a cutting piece of psychological insight and or the only way to interpret succession which i think some people have have done and i don't think that that's how i intend it but
2: no but i i, th- I think you put the uh nuance in there yeah you know i'm just
0: i'm just cautioning i'm probably going to um, talk about it very um uh reductively right now because we're we're talking very quickly (laughs) Um, and, uh, the basic idea is that there are four Roy siblings and there are four classic responses to trauma. Um, there's fight flight, which both obvious, you know, you fight back, you run away. There's freeze, which means that you freeze up. Um, you know, for some people it's like, oh, they just fall into a deep sleep. Um, and then there's fawn, which is a little trickier to understand, but it's basically like, especially happens in abusive children with abusive parents, you try to placate the abuser, you try to sort of um, find a way to uh, give them what they want and tell them how good they are and how great they are. And that gets them to back down. And so I guess my argument is basically um, Connor represents flight because he's always running away in some way or another. Kendall represents fight because he's always pushing back, you know, when he gets cornered and he often pushes back to protect his younger siblings. Roman is freeze. You watch, uh, we talked earlier about the wide shots in this show and how often they're cramming actors into them. Notice how often you have Roman in a shot and something bad happens and he freezes up and doesn't like even look at it. That happens several times in this episode. And then there's Shiv who kind of fawns over her dad and tells him what he wants to hear. And is like very much trying to keep him happy. And I think, my wife recently rewatched the entirety of the show looking for sort of signs of this theory of mine. Cause I told her about it and she was like, it does feel like Shiv was isolated from a lot of the worst, like physical abuse that is intimated here and there. And we see, you know, we see Logan strike Roman in season two, for instance. Um, but You can't escape that entirely. She knew it was a violent home. She knew it was a home without a lot of love in it. And so she tried to sort of insert herself into her father's, you know, good graces. A thing that mostly worked, and this episode that turns, you know, this episode, I feel like people, and I'm saying this honestly, because I would have said this before I watched episode six, I feel like people are not making enough of the fact that Logan blows up at Shiv. And, like, she is bearing the brunt of his abuse for kind of, I think, the first time in her life. And that's the thing that people are kind of gliding by. And, like, I don't think that people haven't, like, pointed to it. It just feels like it's not being played as big of a moment as it is emotionally within the show. Um, so, uh, Succession is widely said to, uh, be running five seasons, um, Four or five, but, you know, HBO will squeeze every last drop out of it that they can. Assuming that the show runs, you know, had two ten-episode seasons. This is a nine-episode season, and there will be two more ten-episode seasons. That's a run of 49 episodes. That would place this episode exactly at the middle of the show. And the midpoint of the show would be Logan blowing up its shiv. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. We don't know if HBO is going to continue renewing this show and for how many episodes it's going to run. But if you look at it... um in that ter- terms of sort of that design like I think back on how Matt Weiner was like the middle of Mad Men is the suitcase I think that right. showrunners do think about that in the back of their brains and it is interesting to me that this would be the midpoint of succession is Logan blowing up at Shiv I think people aren't making enough out of what a big deal it is
2: I thought it was a pretty big deal. It was startling. And her...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm not saying no one here is.
1: I'm not saying no one
0: here is. I'm saying that, like, uh, you know, you look online and there's sort of commentary about, oh, yeah, well, you know. And, and, like, it feels like that moment got downplayed a
1: little bit in... Yeah,
3: Yeah, it's it's overshadowed by the structure of the episode and kind of that Mm anticlimactic...
1: well the very the thing that's really striking to me about that closing scene is uh the shiv's reaction uh she allows herself to be comforted by tom in a way that i I don't think that we've seen her do before Mm -hmm. you know we know that she does take some solace in tom in the in the way that he's always kind of there for her but especially this season you know as kind of like disrupted as their routine has been um, that that was kind of striking to me especially after just like a couple scenes before they were, they were kind of at odds of the the argument mm-hmm. about uh, uh impregnating her uh basically um but yeah it's, it was interesting to me how you know everybody in this episode is so paralyzed that's so key to the comic conceit of the episode uh, but shiv is the one who's able to kind of break through and make a decision and i think it's i i connected it very much to this idea that she has where she is she's more confident of, you know, her place in Logan's orbit than the other characters mm-hmm. are, whether that's correct or not. I think the end, I think the end of this episode implies that she's, she's, she's wrong to be so confident uh, about that, but she's his pinky. And she, she thinks she, she feels confident in going and closing this deal because she can, she can sell it to him later. Um, and she's, she's beginning right. to learn just how difficult it can be to kind of regain his favor. Now right. that she is in kind of the Kendall spot. Right.
0: And I think it is, I think it is the first time in the show that she has suddenly felt that confidence shaken and i think that's an interesting place to put her in heading into the rest of the season um, when you look back at episode two she was the character who seemed the most like potentially swayed by kendall who it would have mattered connor was probably the one who was most likely to go over to kendall but if it was just right. connor and kendall it would not have mattered but shiv being there would have been <laughs> great a big great deal. team yeah <laughs> <laughs> shiv being there would have been a big deal and like i i think that this I think that she counted on her dad always being on her side. And, and this is uh, a big blow to her confidence. I'm interested to see where she goes from here. And honestly, I don't know where she goes from here, even having seen two more episodes, because it's very, very clearly playing a long game. So,
3: I'm just going to point out again, she had her dad as Saddam Hussein in their phone, so she's not totally right. clueless as to who her father is. Right,
0: but there's a jokey quality to that. You know, sure. Yeah. sure. I'm like I yeah. get the, yeah, she That's she fair. definitely knows that he is a bad person. She has yet to experience him being a bad person. And those are two different things.
2: I think there are a couple of moments in season two where, when when she's she's undercut by dad and it hurts her in a way. But yeah, I, I do think this particular instance and in, um of him snapping at her um at the end of the episode was the most jarring, sort of the, the, the biggest um you know, sort of explosion that he's had at her—the biggest undermining of her. But I, I think, I think it's—it starts to build up a little bit in season two. I think,
3: certainly, yeah, the Turnhaven dinner and kind of yes. the fallout from that. But this, this was like the um, slapping Roman, uh, almost just verbally. Yeah, right. And, and we hadn't seen something that dramatic.
2: He gets close to touching her when he kind of uh, taps the champagne glass. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, towing the line yeah, there. Yeah, but yeah. then, you know, he screams, and, and her reaction is um, <laughs> say, "Well, someone's feeling better." You know, again, just refusing to be embarrassed.
0: I think, um, I think it is really interesting that he. This is the episode where he is almost. He's not. It's not. I don't want to say almost, but he does. Sort of brush up against physical abuse of Shiv. It's also an episode in which Rose is mentioned. Um, and Rose is this mm-hmm. like mythical figure within the show. And pretty clearly, we're going to figure mm-hmm. out like what her role is within Logan's um, backstory. It seems pretty clear that Logan had an abusive childhood that Rose ended up bearing the brunt right. of. You know, those are all things the show has more or less intimated. Um, and uh, yeah, I think. I think that Shiv was very much in a place of, even through her, her slights in season two, she was in a place of, I can fix him, you know? <laughs> like, right. and I think <laughs> that that is starting to be dispelled at this point. In the- <laughs>
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Shiv's whole uh, tactic of, you know, entering, taking a position at Waystar is almost the, like, I can fix this company from the inside, right? You know, like, I, you know, real reform happens from the inside. That's what she says to Ken uh, in, in the disruption. But she naturally ends up uh, being reshaped by the institutional kind of interests. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about this episode is that Shiv kind of has an opposite number in Daughter Sandy as she's called a couple times in this episode played by Hope Davis (laughs) who we've only seen once before briefly in Mass in Time of War Um, we still don't learn a lot more about Daughter Sandy she's still a rather mercurial figure but Shiv sort of makes a play like you know you and I we understand each other right like we're the same she makes this very kind of like cynical ploy at the end just like really playing on their shared identity. It's not a bad guess that they might be in sort of similar situations uh with their fathers. But she forges this alliance uh with, with daughter Sandy that might that it's implied might have reverberations throughout the rest of the series. As now uh, the hooks are in on the board, and they have this four-four deadlock um, where it's implied both of the daughters will have positions uh, kind of on the board. Gabby, what was your what was your read on this? Do you think that uh, there's any kind of like real uh, solidarity there, or do you think that this is something that's again just going to be blowback for Shiv down the line?
2: I mean, I think again it's it's largely self-interest, but. Yeah, there was there was something interesting going on there uh you know shiv and sandy are in similar positions in the sense that they're at a disadvantage because they're still sidelined by their larger than life fathers but they do have the advantage of kind of youth and health um and there's kind of a mirror situation going on here that shiv exploits um you know if you're thinking of it from from a from a cynical uh point of view or she taps into um, she says, I don't like how your dad sidelines you, and, and both of them are sort of realizing that with their ailing dads, um, that, you know, for each of them, uh, for each of these families, the succession um, is imminent, and they need to position themselves thusly. So, um, you know, it's also kind of easier to take advantage of a sick dad. Uh, Shiv says you know well I just care If your dad believes it and then you know They kind of share this knowing look like right. Can you sell it and she's like yeah I can Sell it you know so it's still self Interested but I think they're they're seeing Something um, Of themselves in the other and maybe Maybe quietly realizing at this Moment there are ways they can help each other wrest back some power
3: yeah Shiv knows What would work on her and so she uses It on Sandy because she sees yeah. that Parallel
2: but yeah it was it was a win For Shiv it, it you know Cynical as it may be, it reminded me of, um, you know, her little song and dance in DC with the, um, the cruise victim. Um, again, just, you know, well played by Shiv, even though, you know, Logan is never going to really give her credit for it
1: yeah low, low key winner of the power rankings this week daughter sandy you know she uh, uh, she she she, she she emerges with the with the with a trophy that she maybe wasn't wasn't expecting but yeah easier to take advantage of a, of, a, of an elderly dad on the decline you know we talked about how there's so much in this episode about you know kind of gerontocracy you know it's seated in that one of the first things we see in this episode is that news Chiron that's talking about the Raisins' mm-hmm. mental decline that we only realize later is part of this trumped-up media pressure campaign that Logan has initiated to try to get the president... Uh, to take his side in the doj investigation and interfere on his behalf uh, but this backfires spectacularly because now they have the possibility with potus stepping down of getting a less friendly justice department and things could get even worse for them if they're not able to as roman says puppet master the entire american republic project uh to their benefit um so i mean uh <laughs> there, so there's just so much in this episode Uh, About the idea that we're being ruled uh, by these old people who don't have a lot of nuance, don't have a lot of subtlety, are really acting out of spite. And Logan's tactic with the ATN campaign uh, is another example of just like these kind of clumsy bullying tactics, Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of making things more difficult for the people in his orbit. You know, a really good example of that is uh the whole business with the uti in the first place uh only carrie his assistant seems to know about it uh and he sends her off to kind of eavesdrop on the other shareholders um, and it's kind of uh, an irrational decision, uh, but it's one that fits perfectly with Logan's character, where he never wants to show weakness to anybody, uh, and it ends up creating this disastrous situation that it's implied he's not even aware of.
3: Right. All all the talk about dementia it reminded me just of like the generational shift that uh, is kind of happening. You know, the guys in power that have been running the show for so long, and are hanging on to power till the very end. Um, you know, whether it's Sandy Logan or I guess the raisin kind of kind of giving up with with uh they're all in failing health and have some variation of dementia um and so there's definitely going to be a changing of the guard and it doesn't seem like they have fully prepared anyone to take their place um and speaking about logan's uti and dementia i was looking into it and it seems like um a uti in a man is the most chronic uh when they have dementia, um, and and that's really when serious issues arise. Um, you know, not sure how much they want went into you know actual science behind this, but um, dementia is in the air in this yeah. episode.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's never been explicitly said that Logan has dementia, but uh, you know, as someone who's experienced um, you know family members with dementia, it does definitely appear that he has some early stages of dementia um and uh yeah logan's health is always an interesting question and he still is super stubborn about it in, in another world you know carrie would have given those medication um to call in or had a doctor nearby but she doesn't dare defy his wish um, for no one else to know about it and you know logan could have had an entire team of doctors there with him and clinicians by his side instead he's sitting in this You know uncomfortable chair suffering in silence because that's the only way he knows how um you know just this this deadly pride
1: and it's interesting how uh in a recurring pattern i think on the show because you know again this is we've seen logan incapacitated before right and all the way back to the pilot in episode two where one of this uh the children that was most concerned for logan's actual well-being and for his actual wishes was roman uh, who here again seems to be you know really concerned with like we can't just go against dad wishes you know just because he's sick right like uh, we, we've talked a lot about how in this episode about how Shiv's kind of childhood what we can sort of theorize uh, about what we can infer about her childhood uh, informs the way that she interacts with Logan now what do we think about the way that Roman is continuing to kind of uh, fixate uh, on Logan's health in this episode. Gabby, you had some thoughts on this, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I've always uh, picked up on the fact that Roman is sort of the most concerned about dad's health. Um, if you remember in shit should show at the fuck factory, you know, he um, keeps saying he's not going, to you know, he's not going to die in this episode. He has a hard time even looking at Logan when he's kind of in his distressed state. Um, and, also in should show at the fuck factory he was the one who wanted greg to bring the papers so that they could sign the change of trust um yeah he never wants to dare go against what he thinks dad would want in these situations um he's terrified and you know in total freeze mode um a la you know emily's article about the this trauma response so yeah i would love to hear more uh emily what you think about you know roman's trauma response here and and um how that plays out
0: I think Roman is um, accidentally, you know, people talk uh, talk about succession like a show where people can win. Like, I, I spent a whole season recapping the show with winners and losers format, so I'm not, like, adverse to this. Uh, <laughs> Roman is, like, winning the game, you know? Like, he is uh, in there just looking out for his dad, and, like, if it comes down to who his dad wants to s- slide into the CEO seat, it, it, it's kind of like increasingly looking Roman looks like he's in a great position. And that is because when things turn to shit, he just stops doing what he wants and does what Logan wants. And that's what he's trained to do. And he tries to make himself as inconspicuous as possible. And uh, yeah, I think he's, uh, I think he's accidentally well positioned because he is someone who freezes up and just does what he's told in the face of danger.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. Whenever the whenever the parent is angry, trying to uh, yeah, trying to, to to freeze up, just just do what's needed. Uh, don't don't make yourself a fuss. Don't make yourself uh, a target. Uh, and don't rock, don't the, rock boat. the boat. There's,
3: yeah. There's kind of been history of this too, including Raya in season two saying that you know Roman could actually be you know the one he just needs some time
1: well as jerry calls him in this episode yeah. the visionary roman roy Boot, their
3: bootleg <laughs> the, the... and bootleg logan. <laughs> the bootleg
1: logan yeah two uh two yeah. great uh sort of nicknames for him yeah he's uh yeah there's some some more interesting uh jerry and roman bait in this episode maybe he's initially kind of uh pissed off by jerry taking the veto demand to logan the demand that uh, Sandy be able to veto any Roy kid ever taking over as CEO uh, but she kind of makes it up to him right by affirming her confidence in him first on that call with POTUS uh, and then during her floor speech where she refers to him as the visionary Roman Roy in the yeah. camera uh, really like sort of zooms in on him. Uh, him freezing <laughs> seeing that and being very obviously yeah. touched by it he's clearly touched by that gesture I mean again with, with all this stuff with Roman and Jerry I feel like I always have to you know uh, add the caveat that jerry's very smart you know it's entirely possible she's got her long game here it's not either or you know they have a relationship that seems to me to be really authentic in many ways uh but there are also strategic moves here it also obviously benefits jerry to keep roman close and to stay in his good graces and to have family support as she's said in the past
3: sure jerry knows that you got to look out for yourself first as, as she pointed out so you know uh when people reveal themselves
2: yeah. Yeah, but the but the writers have done a good job, I think, um in terms of, you know, we we touched on this a little bit, I think last episode or two episodes ago just not getting silly with the roman jerry storyline keeping it realistic showing a lot of restraint so i'm excited to see what happens there because i think they're playing it yeah, out lots mostly. of
1: restraint they hold the, again you know like somebody was saying online that if uh, if the writers really wanted to pander they'd be giving us a lot more of stewie right and we so we said exactly. this is only our, this oh, is only our second stewie <laughs> appearance of the entire of the entire season we still don't right. get very much uh
2: i think i think I think the tweet was we would we would have gotten well, Stewie yes. full frontal already. <laughs> yes, and I really and I and I and I let into... it go by
1: earlier, but the, but, but you mind. did say the phrase uh, Ken is able to penetrate Stewie, so you know, we're not we're not above
2: Oh yeah, that was a little, <laughs> little that was a little bit of a red meat Freudian, to the crowd, little yeah. There. <laughs> it was... So um what about little uh, little
1: Greggy? Little Greggy. He's he gets burned by both Ken and Ewan in this episode, you know, first Ken has that conversation. Doesn't he call him McGregor when he's inviting him up to the suite? Yes. <laughs> McGregor.
2: Yeah. That's, that's an MMA reference. Of course, Ken watches MMA. Uh,
1: but uh, yeah, he gets, he gets, uh, Ken says that he may have to burn him, i.e. turn him over to DOJ or tell the department, tell the department of justice that he has information uh, to give. Increasingly, it's seeming like uh, Ken's uh, press conference about the documents was kind of a bluff that uh, Greg doesn't probably doesn't have key documents documents to show or ken doesn't have them and what he has instead is the possibility that greg might testify or that he might be able to get other people to flip because that's what ken's been focused on so far uh, perhaps in subsequent weeks we'll learn more about this uh, but it increasingly seems like uh, ken's strategy is a lot more people dependent and less document dependent than he implies um, but then greg is also uh, burned by uncle ewan who's there with roger Pugh again and informs him that he is in the process of leaving his entire estate, uh, including Greg's inheritance, uh, to Greenpeace. Uh, Greg's inheritance, which I think had already been dwindled down to five million dollars, um, you know, you, which, which, as Connor said, is a nightmare. You can't do anything with five. Uh, but, uh, he, but yeah, he gets, uh, and Ewan gives him some straight talk. He says, you gotta take yourself seriously, kid. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, Ewan is – he's giving Greg a lot more grace than he deserves here. Uh, You know, he's giving us some solid advice about taking himself seriously and that, um, you know, his life and his actions have impact on other people. He can't keep running around throwing his lot in with, you know, whomever is most appealing at the time and not expect consequences. Uh, Greg has really lost himself in this family. His supposed best buddy Ken calls him a bottom feeder and says – Also, I really like you, Greg, (laughs) in basically the same breath. And I do feel some sympathy for him because none of these teams are great teams to be on. But unlike a lot of the other characters, he had an out and he didn't take it. He had a $250 million out. um, And for him to not even let his grandfather know about signing the JDA was really cowardly. So, you know, while we saw Greg get a little savvier at the end of season one and throughout season two, he's kind of now regressed back to a, a no growth arguably reverse growth status um you know also don't take peter regert for a ride you ungrateful little boy
0: i miss i'm gonna miss uh greg's socialist lawyer like, i that know was, that oh. was, i was,
1: hoping, oh, I was, that was really
3: funny. hoping we get some fun there but
1: yeah there there needs um, to be a yeah. comeback we need to we need to see him uh, giving you know marxist lectures at some point That's
0: right. I'm sure that you all (laughs) have commented on this, but uh, considering she's in just kind of the one scene that that Kendall and Greg are in, it is astonishing to me that there is a character on this show named Comfrey. Yes.
3: (laughs) Oh, we've had a lot of (laughs) offline discussions about this name. um, I think it works as like a Zoomer kind of goofy... Name, um, but I was I was not <laughs> yeah. sold on it at first until I saw it on TV. I was like, "This is ridiculous," yeah. but for some reason, it, it like I was like, "Oh, this works," and surprisingly, by Dasha's uh, acting as well, I thought has been pretty. Pretty solid.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Solid. I enjoy the character. I enjoy her performance. I just think it's funny that her name is <laughs> yeah, Comfrey. Yeah, it says.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: I've never heard that name. name Every before. kid was... in Leo's pre-K classes is, is named Comfrey. It's, it's, it's just...
3: Well, now they will be <laughs> yeah. after this. After
1: this. Yes, yeah, exactly. Oh my
2: God, I was, I was think, I was thinking about the Game of Thrones. Leo's my son, by the way. For... <laughs> um, <laughs> I was thinking about the Game of Thrones Khaleesi effect, and like we're gonna see a renaissance of the name Siobhan in the next mm-hmm. ten years. Here, yes. Like, <laughs> Everybody wants their daughter well, to be uh, just
1: you... like Shiv. Yeah. <laughs> we can, She's we can only hope. Well, yes. Yeah, <sighs> spe- speaking of Shiv, I know we're, I know we're running a little long and we want to make sure we get to, uh, yeah. to, to a few more characters because we still haven't really talked about yes. Tom in this episode, who, again, we talked, we, we, we mentioned Big last Tom week at- that he's been often kind of siloed from the main drama. Uh, in this season. Um, and here he has a couple of uh, scenes that I thought were so great for Matthew McFadyen. And I found to just be, you know, in, in, different ways, expressing the ways in which Tom has some kind of human responses that the other characters, uh, tend not to express, you know, the bit where he is, uh, helping, uh, Logan in, in the bathroom, uh, when, when his, uh, UTI is flaring, uh, and uh, he has that moment <laughs> where he says you know thanks thanks son and then thanks pop in response but it's just just the the f- uh, papa, papa yeah the but the physical acting that i've remarked on <laughs> so many times with matthew McFadyen is so wonderful um and and really here i just got the sense of somebody you know like instinctively responding to an elderly person in need that you know beneath all of sort of tom's goofiness and his obsequiousness and the ways in which he's kind of repulsive i, I found that to be just like a, an authentic kind of human response the way he's talking to uh, to logan
2: well even 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 when logan is kind of freaking out and and at the height of his um little episode about the dead cat and logan starts saying who's being mean to frank only i can be mean to frank which is hilarious in and of itself uh tom is there saying you know no no there was mm-hmm. just some silly people here but they're gone now <laughs> and that's 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 all, all joking aside that is what you do with right. some dementia you kind of have to go along with whatever um you know whatever state they're in and, and tom was able to do that better than you know any of the of the kids so there's you know, yeah you're something there. you're
1: reminded um, that think, tom you know, kind of grew yeah. up in a normal background right like he wasn't i don't right. think he, he wasn't poor or anything he was comfortable but he didn't have but he didn't have the roy's upbringing you know he, he does come from sort of a real world where you can imagine that he has encountered elderly relatives and had and not had servants around to care for them right um so you, you know we it, continue yeah. to infer things about these people's backgrounds and that was just what i read from tom there
3: it just really made me laugh uh, because I did watch this um, once with my mom. And, oh, my gosh, I've never heard any her laugh. We wa- watch almost every episode together, um, usually on rewatch. But, uh, yeah, she hasn't laughed out loud uh, to any succession episodes as much as this one. And that was a big laugh line for her. <laughs> so
1: interesting.
3: Um, oh, I mean, yeah, the whole, like, the de- dead
2: yeah, cat that, that, thing. I mean, that, it's just... Like, Ten Mm -hmm. Colin, them having to call off. Poor Frank. She kept saying, "Poor Frank." Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Logan asking, "What do you think of the deal?" And Colin's kind of like. This is not my job, bro.
1: <laughs> not, not what his, not what his uh, special ops training is for. Yeah, and then the uh, the other big uh, uh, Tom moment in this episode was when he kind of, uh, again, in, a, in another sort of callback to season two, he kind of, you know, grabs up Shiv as she's coming out of the elevator having closed the deal with Sandy and, you know, makes moves to kind of like, you know, seduce her and pursue that energy and, then uh implies that he's uh trying to impregnate her before he goes to jail and he's been tracking her cycles (laughs) uh so so that he knows what the the, the most opportune window for that is again you know very weird very kind of creepy uh but also you know just thinking about how tom is different from these other characters you know he says something to shiv there where he's like you know what is all this for if you know if we don't have a kid if we don't if if we don't have something to look forward to and you know tom trying to build a future that he can look forward to rather than these characters who are trying to hold on to uh the present and avoid any kind of change but i mean but i mean you know gabby we were talking about how this uh, the the child rearing conversation has been sort of seeded in earlier with them right
2: yeah i mean i think this scene might have come out of left field for some people but it's actually very in line with the arc of shiv and tom's relationships in season one we've had a few mentions of you know their family planning there's the prenup in season one which tom says includes tiered share option tie-ins for my sperm count um in austerlitz there's a conversation with Marsha about tom wanting to freeze embryos not just eggs so there's a little bit of him in there um, and then there's sort of the gutting line from logan and boar on the floor where he asks tom why he hasn't given him a, a grandson yet or is he shooting blanks um, i also love the casual misogyny of logan they're not a grandchild but a grandson um, because she's so unaffectionate with holding, I think it's easy to sh- to think that Shiv does not want kids, um, but that's not how it works in families like this, guys. Um, there is a natural order to life. You need to give your parents grandchildren and you need- your family needs heirs. So while I doubt Shiv is particularly keen on being a mother, um, it will have to happen. And again, she won't exactly have to be a mother. You can outsource this stuff when you have this much money as we've you know, plainly seen this season with Ken. Um, You know, especially as her position as the only daughter, she's on this pedestal when it comes to, you know, this kind of stuff. And I think I might have said it in our preseason recording. I'm not sure if it was the one we aired or the one we couldn't air, but I've kind of long expected this conversation to be broached by either Tom or Shiv to order in order to like save the relationship. Um, you know, it's a horrible way to look at building a family and it's, it's the child who will ultimately suffer. But, you know, this happens very often in, in, in failing marriages. And I think Tom is realizing just how critical having a baby with Shiv is. Um, as we've heard time and again, Tom is not really family and he needs to establish mm-hmm. a bloodline tie to this family um, for all of this heartache yep. to be worth it. If he fathers a, a Wams Gans Roy or maybe just a Roy, he significantly improves his lot in the family. So, you know, there is some self interest there. Um, but I do also think Tom genuinely wants to be a dad and it would make him feel useful, so to speak, to give a grandchild to Logan, particularly
3: one um,
2: from his, you know, favorite child.
3: Yeah, I cynically read that line, uh, what is this all for then? And um, in, in, in the way that you're kind of, you just uh, articulated, Gabby. Uh, what is all this heartbreak and heart, you know, I, if I don't have right. uh, a link to you at the end of all this, me going to jail, me doing right. this. I read it. I read it quite simply. Syn- I mean, it can be read both ways, which is the brilliance of the show. But um, and so, you know, I, I think it is meant kind of both ways. Yeah. If
2: he goes to prison, you, you know, who knows how many guys she exactly. has to sleep with? Who <laughs> knows what's going to happen when he comes out? But if
3: there's a baby there, you know, that's security that's right. for him. And a tied, you know, to, to the Roys.
0: Tom and Greg are the characters who seem like they're probably the least touched by abuse. We don't know that for sure. We don't know a lot about their backstories. But it is interesting to me that Tom is the character who's able to look forward. Um, often in people who have been raised with severe abuse, there is just an attempt to focus on making the present as safe as possible and not really thinking mm-hmm. about the future. So I think it's interesting that Tom is the... One character who really is starting to think about the future in terms of you know the way that is most uh most human i guess in passing along your dna in some way um and uh i think that is an interesting not it's not it's not a plot tease it's an interesting thematic tease for the rest of the season
1: Absolutely, mm. yeah. I think um, one. I think I read an article with uh, Snook and McFadden where they said that one of the discarded lines for this scene was that uh, Tom is going to plant a mole in her womb to spy on her.
2: Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, are you keeping a shadow log? Keeping a like, shadow log. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh God.
1: <laughs> um, I know we have to let, I know we have to let Emily Criminal go in a couple mindset. minutes, so I just want to make sure that we, uh, get, uh, yeah. that we hit, uh, Ken and his, uh, sermon on the Marriott at the very end here. I mean, the Ken stuff in this episode is just, I don't know, it's so funny. I mean, a lot of people I think had, again, had issues with how Ken is sidelined, but it's not a, it's not the first time the show has done this. And I mean, the stuff with him storming the stage and then committing his second murder this time of a rabbit, um, was just too funny um you know i I don't know i just i I just got a big kick out of this stuff and I, i think it's just it's a good example of how flexible these characters are how well built they are and how well the writers know them that someone like kendall can be so effective as like a tragic protagonist in this drama and also just as an insanely funny comic relief figure as he's used here
0: oh yeah i i um um i'm so into how kendall's being used this season like gosh they set this season up and i think this is probably the marketing is so much about logan versus yeah, yeah, kendall yeah. and then it's just Make very moves, much like right, oh yeah. you know what it didn't it kind of didn't matter um but you know the yeah. I, I think that kendall has a stronger hand than he seems like he does even at the end of this episode and um I am fascinated by how they're going to play out the development from the season one finale that Logan mm-hmm. has yet to bring up at any point. Uh, I'm just Oof. and granted that also gives Logan a bit of a black eye because Logan assisted in covering it up, but it certainly right. destroys Kendall in like five seconds. And so. it's been brought up twice
3: this season, first by Marsha and then yes. by Dylan. Yes. I know you. So, I mean, we yeah. the foreshadowing is there. Um, Again, yeah. Kendall, be careful what you wish for. You reap what you sow. I'm getting a lot knowing, of that this season. <laughs>
0: knowing this season... Knowing this show, it probably won't come up this season and it will just be dropped in a random season four episode. Yeah. But yeah, they're foreshadowing it pretty well.
1: I mean, I they yeah, haven't lost, not lost the, thread. the thread yeah yeah adam in our premiere episode talked about the show holding on to that detail and strong holding on to that in the performance but I, the what i always sort of assumed that that was not going to be like some unexploded time bomb or some chekhov's gun thing that was going to go off at some point uh but just sort of it, it what it continue to serve the purpose it already serves on the show which is this underlying sort of activation of all the drama and this thing that makes the themes of the show more personal For the characters, you know, the sort of abstracted crimes of the family versus the actual material physical crime that Ken committed. Um, So, and I, and I, so I I don't think that the show needs to sort of pay that off again in a Chekhov's gun style at some point to draw another Breaking Bad comparison, kind of like the whole business with Walt seeing Jane die is like the thing that everybody thought had to come back at some point. And then when they eventually paid it off, it was like a real afterthought. so I, I I would I would be fine with it if the show never really uh, addressed that in plot terms again. Um, but yeah, they they do seem to uh, continually bringing it up.
3: Right, and he's constantly haunted and changed forever as a person, which is really the the bigger point, Brendan. That yeah. She, you know, mm-hmm. even if they don't plot wise, you know, uh, it, 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 it's it's the motivator for what has happened. Yeah um and and kendall's arc it's the
1: thing that makes ken it's the thing that for ken makes his existence within the family intolerable it's why he it's why he's driven to act out in the way he does and why he'll continue to be you know sort of an antagonist even if he is kind of a pathetic and kind of funny one as he is here um it makes it in in unsustainable for him to continue to just be uh the obedient son he can't he can't bear it I.
0: I say this as as a storyteller. I don't I think I would respect this show for never bringing it up in terms of the plot, never having it pay off in mm-hmm. terms of the plot. I think it would be a really weird choice. This is a show that could pull it off. I think you don't do something like that if you're not going to pay it off plot-wise somewhere for down sure. the line. Mm-hmm. Like they could make it work but i do think there is an element of this is probably coming back at some point more overtly than it already has hi puppy
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey tommy pastor oh my god tommy? sorry about that <laughs> well, they,
1: that's a that's yeah. a good cue for us to start wrapping up um i know we haven't really touched on connor but you know in the spirit of how we usually talk about connor again alan ruck on fire this season um we just go around and say what our our favorite moments were from the episode uh, connor or otherwise kate
3: uh since we're talking about connor i love how he says um i'd love to talk to that little bitch referring <laughs> to pre- the president
1: <laughs> gabby
3: um i like when
2: uh greg is going in to talk to jerry kind of leaning down and roman slips in and he's like excuse me is this business or friendly
1: <laughs> business or friendly <laughs> very very germane question for roman yeah uh connor makes a reference to uh to reagan having a uti nearly nuking belgium there was a, there were a bunch of other sort of great political references in this episode especially to russia and like cold war stuff like roman yeah. calls ken putin referencing the sort of like putin poisonings and the moscow uh, and the,
2: washington yeah
1: yeah at the beginning frank is sort of implying that he and ken are forming a back channel like it's the cuban missile crisis or something uh, which again i just i, I love the way that those comparisons while you know like as we talked about with everett in episode three bring up all kinds of interesting parallels to discuss always serve to sort of highlight how like sort of petty and small bore these uh, uh situations actually are right um emily it's been so great to talk to you i want to give you an opportunity to mention any favorite moments from the episode we haven't covered yet and then anything uh you want to plug and where folks can can find your work i
0: i just love I just love Karen Culkin's delivery of this imaginary dead cat. Um, uh, when Kendall's like, what's happening? <laughs> what is he, What's is that?
3: He doesn't even think twice about it. He's like, oh, it's just an imaginary cat, you know.
0: I do think that that is going to come back in a very haunting and tragic way in um, season five, which will obviously be the Logan okay. season. Season four is going to be the Connor season. Right. And I can't like even begin to comprehend what that looks like.
2: Well, they just opened up a lot with the whole, uh, you know,
1: that's the House of Cards season.
2: President Raisin, Presidency, yeah, yeah. I know you've seen yeah. the episode, but
0: yeah. yeah, I'm I'm thrilled. Yeah. Well, listen, listen. This is a bit of a spoiler, but by the end of episode seven, uh, Connor is named God Emperor oh. of the planet. Uh, it's an interesting term ah. for the show. Um, and then they all they all move to Arrakis and uh, start harvesting spice. Oh. It's kind of fun. Honestly. I do think
1: Connor would oh. get Dune pills. He would get concept. really into Dune. That would not be out of place if he just got super into it. <laughs>
0: I think season four just having a plot where Connor's super into Dune totally makes sense and let's just uh, Jesse Armstrong call me on water rights he loves water Um, rights right (laughs) Uh, uh, my name is Emily Vanderwerf you can find me at Vox.com where I am the critic at large you can find me on Twitter where I dictate all my adventures uh twitter.com slash emilyvdw um i have a fiction podcast its name is arden it is a uh fake true crime show about two women who uh solve cold cases and try not to fall in love uh it's a very weird very queer show and sometimes it's about how i'm sad about my trauma um just like <laughs> succession uh and then uh succession doesn't have enough queer people in it
2: yeah, that's succession true. needs I some mean, queers. I mean, there's like that's a thing you know, that the,
3: should The, the meme lords sort of speculate an about it. To a yeah, couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but it, yeah, not. It none hasn't been explicit yet. Out and
0: right. We need like a very 90s like episode where Shiv like meets a lesbian and yeah. they make out, and then she's like, "Wow, that Shiv was interesting." And then ways. just never yeah. mentioned again. Um, you can also read my newsletter at emilyvdw.letterdrop.com and 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 I have a wow. book, uh, Monsters of the Week: The Complete Critical Companion to the X-Files. has been out for a few years, but I'm just going to keep plugging it because every time you buy it, I get like five cents. <laughs> so, uh,
1: yeah, there you go. Just, yeah. just just Google Emily's name. You'll find a bunch of great stuff uh, to read. I've been reading her stuff for a long time, and I gotta say, we don't often have people reach out to us about who should come on the show, but when we do, every single time, it has been emily vanderwerf's name yep. as someone that people uh, would like to hear us talk to on the show so we're so delighted we were able to make it happen and thanks so much again for, for joining us emily it was a blast
0: i'm glad that i'm coming in ahead of like jeremy strong
1: <laughs> thanks for <laughs> having that yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah precisely
3: our, our good buddy
1: our close friend inventor of acting jeremy strong um okay thanks once again thanks to Kate and Gabby thanks to our producer Dan Black thanks everybody for listening if you are enjoying the RoyCast we would be so grateful if you would leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes we are so grateful for the folks who have done so who listen to us every week and who make this passion project of ours worthwhile we will be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession this was the midpoint of the season and it's all downhill from here baby and the RoyCast is with you every step of the way until then everyone take care of yourself Good luck.